0: Action. Episode 31 in the new year.
1: Happy 2019.
0: Okay, even though it's like 3 3 weeks into the new year, we're still going to say happy new year because we're back.
1: We're, we're back. back. I got a message from a concerned holy canola <laughs> saying, "Are you done? Tony started a brave maker podcast. Does that mean holy cannoli is done. I'm
0: washing my hands of holy cannoli. I'm done with you all. Just kidding. No, the we answer's
1: just, no. We needed
0: a little break. We had to kind of recalibrate a little bit. We literally were in our pajamas for the Christmas solid. day, Christmas day after. And the two days that we were like, no,
1: we were exiting the home, <laughs> playing Bananagrams
0: and Catan. We were playing settlers we were playing of Catan. A lot of games. So Canolios as a whole family, we have a seven, nine and 11 year old. They're all getting ready to switch into the next year. Birthdays, but we were like Catan freaks. And I was Mr. Anti Catan mm-hmm. for years upon years because Wendy's side of the family, they are like
1: <laughs> into <laughs> they it. They
0: are very much into it. And it takes like <laughs> them hours upon hours. And I was like, I don't have any energy to sell wheat or trade sheep. I have just, I'm not into this building <laughs> roads. But my wife found a way in.
1: No, you dropped the hint. I said, Oh, they Did have I? a Game of Thrones okay. version. Oh. And you said, I might be into it. Maybe I'd be into Catan if it was the Game Game of of Thrones. Thrones, Because I love
0: Game of Thrones, and you took the bait. Did it? line, and sinker, and I got a Settlers of Catan, Game of Thrones version, underneath the tree.
1: Yeah, you did. And
0: Santa was very kind, so... Thanks, babe, for doing that. So that's why we were on a Little Hiatus, but we're back. We are back. It's twenty nineteen. We got goals. We got we got vision boards all over the, the living room right now of Whoa. what we're gonna be accomplishing this year. Nothing, nothing. No
1: vision. Nothing
0: like that. <laughs> do you have any goals, babe? Do you wanna share? You're not like oh
1: uh, no, I'm not a big goal person, but I did get a cool book, like a growth book journal. So I wrote down some things. I mean, general stuff.
0: The challenge with living with me that Wendy has to deal with, unfortunately, is I'm always trying to go like, what's your five-year plan? Where do you want to be in 10 years from now? And sometimes she'll look at me and just... be
1: Like, can we just have a normal date? (laughs) Do Do we have to map out the next five years?
0: I love thinking about the future. I love vision casting. And, you know, I'll just put it out there because I think it keeps me accountable. I'm trying to make a feature film this year, people. One feature film. Two would be great, but the reality oh is God,
1: well, I'm, <laughs>
0: I'm trying to make a feature film. I'm trying to make it happen. I'm The script is done. I got to find the right partners, the right people. We're looking for locations, we're looking for funders. We're going to distribute it ourselves. We're going to Figure this out. We're trying to make it happen. And that's my goal. That's my goal. As well as the Brave Maker screenings, we are yeah, rocking lots of other and goals. So excited. Have. I do have lots of other goals, but I'm trying yeah. to like just you know throw a few out okay. here right now so I don't bombard because people like get on with the podcast, right? You guys want to hear our special guest because it's a juicy one today. But let me just say the goal for monthly screenings with Brave Maker, we've already accomplished now through March. We have a monthly screening event. We just had our first January one. Last week, with a film called I'll Push You. And we want to say, you got to watch it, you guys. It's oh, so good. Oh, so
1: good.
0: Documentary. And this is the tagline 500 Miles, Two Friends, One Wheelchair. These two guys went to the Camino in Spain and hiked. And he, this guy, pushed his best friend. It was so gut wrenching and emotional. Awesome. And beautiful. Yeah. It
1: was friendship, sacrifice, yep. Yep. community, yep. leaning on others. So good. By the way, So many people have heard of the Camino. I never (laughs) knew about that. So if you're a holy canola and you've actually done it, we we want to know. know. If you've heard of it, I would also like to know. We would like to know. Because I never heard of it. And then all (laughs) these people came out of the woodwork like, oh, Yeah. My friend did that. My grandma's going to do just, that. My
0: grandma, <laughs> it's just very convicting that we haven't traveled the world as much as the is rest of you all. So that's Sorry. the problem. Anyway. Okay.
1: So I'll push you though is available. Yeah. So if you missed the screening, um, I highly recommend you go find it. It's on Amazon. You could download yeah, it. Amazon, iTunes, iTunes. I think all those
0: places, but if you're a DVD type of person and you want all the extras, they have a special edition with behind the scenes and extra footage. And Terry Parrish, the director, gave Brave Maker a special code for free shipping. So if you go to com, you can order the DVD and get free shipping right to your house.
1: Just type in Brave Maker, one word, capital B, yeah, capital right. M, and you'll get the free shipping.
0: Next event is February 22nd. This one is bound to sell out. We sold out last month, by the way. We I oversold because I know people always flake, <laughs> but we had 175 tickets sold and it was sold out. People were buying at the door. So the next one's going to sell out too because Matt Nightingale, my BFF Ooh. from episode 8, 9 and 20 is going to be at this event and it's going to be hosted in the awesome space of Box Inc in downtown Redwood City at their top floor and their really cool hub. So we have 200 tickets available for that and there's going to be drinks and schmoozing and live music with Matt Nightingale and then a Really cool short film called Guardian by a director, writer-director named Nicholas Jara, who will also be in town, and that is an LGBTQ discussion in which we're going to record it live. So we'll have a live broadcast, a live podcast that night. So tickets are available. We'll put the link in the show notes. The link will also be on our Facebook page, but you can go to bravemaker.com slash events for all that stuff. And our Get March your event.
1: tickets now. It's posted
0: there too. Okay, so today I got to interview Dan Collison, Um, About a month ago, so I was holding on to this all month. It's going to be our first one of 2019, and it's a it's a doozy one. And I want to be really um, just transparent and humble about this discussion because it's it's challenging. Because uh, Dan is a part of the denomination that I used to serve with, and then I love the people that I got to serve with for 20 years. Uh, The denomination is going through some challenges trying to make you know their their doctrine and their belief statements about what marriage is and human sexuality is, and it does not affirm the LGBTQ community to be engaging in marriage. Uh, It does not affirm the LGBTQ community as um, sanctioned or included in the family of God. And so Dan Collison is a straight white pastor who just was leading his church and attempting to be Godly and loving and saying hey we want anybody and everybody to be a part of God's family whether you're gay straight, white, black whatever you're know heterosexual marriage or a homosexual marriage and the reality is he was um, he was suspended and had some disciplinary action put on him just for doing that He didn't officiate a same-sex wedding. He just was saying anybody could be a member of his church and so it's been a really challenging thing. I've been following this for the past couple of years. Uh, as a denomination. And he shared pretty candidly about the challenge, and he's one of four people in the denomination that I used to formerly work for that has had some repercussions to just try to be loving to the gay community. And so Dan is a very smart and intellectual person. You will catch that. We talked via Skype. So you'll you'll hear the, the, the quality of the podcast is a little bit different because we did it over the interwebs on Skype. Um, but it's still good. And I really encourage you to listen, listen with an open mind. And I'm not trying to bash. I'm not trying to degrade that denomination that I once served with, I but I am trying to critique, critique. I am trying to critique it. I am trying to challenge it, and I am trying to say we need to think differently, and we need to open our minds to see Scripture and to see what the ramifications of excluding a people of a certain orientation, what that will do, what that does emotionally, what that does spiritually, and literally what that does to the physical expression of what it means to be God's people as the church. So. Enjoy this conversation as difficult uh, and heady as it might be for you. It will be worth your while. You are listening to the Holy Cannoli Podcast. It's all about making sense of life, who we are, and why we're here. Life is sacred and life is strange. And here's our dad, Tony Gappasone. All right, well, hey, can we just jump right in? Is that cool? Of course. Awesome. And do I say your name, Collision? Is that just how you, is that how you say it? <laughs>
2: No, that's not how
0: to say how it. How do you say it? Collison. Collison. I All right.
2: Saying. So there's some famous basketball players with the last name Collison. Okay. Nick Collison, Dwayne Collison. He was to California, I think, like, uh, not USC. But anyway, they went pro. They helped, the, they helped the cause so that there wasn't more collisions or <laughs> Colson's or – Callisons,
0: Dan, well, your Colisee. sports your sports analogies don't work on me, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I am the least sports person in the world. I don't have any grasp for um, sports metaphors, but I appreciate that I know how to say your last name now because last names are important. I have a last name that many people don't get right either, so that's why I had to ask. <laughs>
2: well, my, my wife of 28 years, Holly, collison uh she's an artist and there was a radio announcer once who says we have holy collision lined up for today and you know i it was half like funny and half like no i really thought it was holy collision like it was a band or something
0: i kind of like that actually maybe um someone should steal that who's a listener to the podcast (laughs) well hey let's jump in thanks so much for giving your time uh you're all the way in um minnesota yeah, Minnesota. I tried to say that last week on the podcast and my wife made fun of me for um, my lack of ability to sound like Fargo. But <laughs> I appreciate you uh, and what you're doing and I want my listeners to be able to hear your sacred and strange story. So let's just start with uh, Dan Collison. Who are you and why in the world are you on this planet? Well,
1: that's a really
2: great set of questions. Um, I think my Twitter handle sort of really frames, um, I should say my Twitter Twitter biography frames kind of in one sentence how I see myself, Um, and and here it is. Uh, I am a civic leader and pastor who spends most days bringing people together across sectors through interdisciplinary work for the purpose of human flourishing, and that sentence, that kind of long run on sentence, <laughs> encompasses a lot of, you know, what I do, for sure. I tilt toward the vocational career sort of perspectives. But there's a lot embedded as well, you know, that I'm not just one thing, um, that I also over the years, you know, I even describe myself vocationally as a professional generalist, <laughs> meaning Ooh. that I've just got a very eclectic background and a very eclectic Non linear path to all the work that I do. And so uh, those words I use a civic leader, Mm -hmm. someone who spends time uh, in business and nonprofit and with public elected people. And then as a pastor, I'm the lead pastor at First Covenant Church Minneapolis. I've been a full time vocational pastor for 27 years. Uh, And I do spend most of my days, about 90 hours a week, bringing people together across sectors and through interdisciplinary work. And for me, the language of human flourishing is something that both encompasses my work as a pastor and it encompasses my work as a civic leader. And I can apply Christian theology to it all day. And interestingly, and part of my narrative is that the best sorts of uh, development and neighborhood planning and policy actually helps human beings flourish and for me that's a bridge that i continue to do every day and integration is like one of my major themes i want to lead an integrated life even though i work bivocationally and have many different angles
0: that sounds like a lot of sacred and strange work which is perfect <laughs> for this podcast so can you do some deep diving hot what does that look like 90 hours a week it's a lot of hours a week uh those who are in the Silicon Valley will go, that's normal. But I go, as someone who's a pastor and a civic leader, what does that look like day-to-day, hour-to-hour? What are the things that you're doing to help people flourish? By the way, I love that, helping humans flourish. That's really cool.
2: Yeah. So I think the best way for me to get into that question is to actually tell you a little of the story of the last decade of my life. Uh, When I came to downtown Minneapolis in 2009, uh, I was sort of experiencing a a convergence of many things. Uh, I was finishing my doctoral program at Fuller Seminary. Uh, I had been an associate pastor for 18 years in three different churches, small, medium, and mega. and in many ways were, were asking different questions of the environment that I was in than what that environment could, uh, let me work on. And so coming to downtown Minneapolis, coming to First Covenant Church uh, to to an environment where the church was three years from bankruptcy, didn't have a plan, had a large building and block in the middle of the east side of downtown, but downtown centric, uh, for me was like a bit of a reset, a bit of a big question, and and a sense of like, Who am I becoming as a person and as a Christ follower all at once? And so to get to your larger question, I just need to quickly say that what happened uh, when I arrived was that, you know, I took the tradition, I would say the traditional pastoral vision path of saying, I need to volunteer. I need to learn how to serve the community. And so while I started the the redevelopment work of First Covenant Church, which was very multifaceted, I also began immediately volunteering for the local neighborhood organizations and there was a small business association on this side of town that had been started in the 70s, late 70s and wasn't terrifically strategic at the time, but were wonderful people. And sort of lockstep with the church being redeveloped into a downtown urban vital community of faith and learning how to uh, share their building and property with the community based upon what the community wanted and needed and was interested in. I found myself over many years uh, volunteering. In fact, for five years, uh, six years I was a volunteer board member and then a chair of this association uh, business association uh, at one point I was volunteering like 25 hours a week wow uh, yeah my wife Holly's like how, well, how much work <laughs> how much time are you spending <laughs> and I kind of mumbled because <laughs> I know she was like you're gone you're doing a lot of work I love it but what are you doing and what's it taking
0: how are you going to pay you're... these bills volunteering all that time
2: Exactly right. And uh, what was happening was I was falling in love with downtown Minneapolis. I was getting to know a lot of people in institutions, cross-sector, literally neighborhood leaders, elected leaders, city, county, um, also business leaders, some on the nonprofit side, some on the corporate side. And because it was all locational, it was contextual, the church actually is in the middle of what we now call East Town, the east side of downtown, East Town, that's experienced three billion dollars of redevelopment in six years. Hmm. I mean, it's a, it's an it, it's a national and international story attached to a new NFL stadium. Actually, it's not just NFL stadium; it's called U.S. Bank Stadium, and there's concerts and high school sports, and but it's a sports and entertainment complex. One point one million dollars to build, uh, and then there were there was a new urban campus and. Beyond that, though, housing and parks and a new medical clinic and $3 billion in six years is an astonishing amount of reinvestment. And uh, over those many years, uh, working on that business civic side of things, I began to see that people generally are reaching for the same kinds of things, whether you're in a Christian church or whether you're trying to serve the most amount of people – Um, And that's human flourishing. And and the work of bridging between being a pastor who is committed to a particular tradition and someone who then shows up in civic space, represents business and nonprofits, but needs to connect to the elected officials and public officials, uh, I began to realize there were lots of bridging pieces. So a typical week, um, by the way, a typical week when I arrived downtown was like 90 hours a week just to do revitalization. And then now it still is 90 hours a week, uh, but it's kind of this—it's kind of this interwoven tapestry where it's not like I do all church one day and all business the next day. Um, I actually have this privilege of having a very creative schedule uh, that I map out a balance of, you know, 45 hours for the business and civic work and. 35 to 40 hours for the church. And while some days are heavier in one area and other days are heavier in other areas, um, it's really a tapestry. Mm-hmm. And and on, and on most days and most weeks, it works. Mm-hmm. When something goes terribly wrong in one of the areas that I work, uh, I really begin to feel some heat. Like, mm-hmm. oh my word, uh, this is exhausting. Have I gotten enough sleep? Um And and I have to be really careful. And I would say that's – as a 50-year-old now, I'm having to think about sustainability. I'm having to think about energy levels. I will comment, though. I've been doing uh, sort of an integrated holistic 90-hour week uh, forever. I mean when I fell in love with my wife back in music school. Uh, I was a double major leading a nonprofit music group. And then volunteering at the church, you know, and then we got married and then we started doing foster care homes for disabled adults and, and worked as a professional musician and then at an office product store and then became a pastor and still did professional music and produced some of my wife's stuff and ran a foster care home. And then we moved it through. It just kept kind of moving. Um, and as my wife Holly says, um, you know, you've always been uh, flexible and available and it's why I think we have a really good, like we have a very imperfect but lovely family with mm-hmm. two kids. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's it's the fluidity of saying time to break off and pay attention, and always having some time on the weekends uh, where we are spending meaningful time together. And somehow, over the years, it's it's always worked.
0: Hmm. So, so Dan, you talk about the church a lot. Obviously, that's part of your life, part of your job. You spend a significant amount of hours serving in a church culture. And for a lot of our listeners, they resonate with what that looks like. Uh, others of our listeners are really not engaged in a routine gathering you know, in a, in a building with a cross on it or practicing faith maybe in different ways. Uh, can you comment a little bit on what you think about the state of the church today? I mean, you're in the Midwest. And so I think there's some maybe assumptions or stereotypes about the church in the Midwest. Uh, I'd just love to hear, like, you're ge- like you're, you're a generalist, right? So you're good at this yeah. kind of stuff. <laughs> Speak on what the church is. Is it dying? Is it alive? Is it doing good? And I, I believe it is. At the same time, is it doing damage? Anything you want to share about the church?
2: Yeah, that's a great question uh, because I, I love the church. And at the same time, I feel like the church can do as much harm as any institution on the earth. And so one thing I should clarify, when I came downtown 10 years ago, my doctoral works really tried to study the missiological or the missional church idea, which was really about the gospel uh, being lived out uh, both contextually but also in a more general, generally generous and I would say permeable way Um, And those principles of the missiologists of Leslie Newbegin and David Bosch, as I did my doctoral work, was very interesting and enticing to me. And the crisis for me was that coming from mainline evangelicalism, uh, there were so many questions that were being asked that were very important across the spectrum. You know, from, you know, what is postmodernity to how is the church helping in matters of social justice Mm. to, of course, things like, uh, gender egalitarianism and the human sexuality conversation. I mean, there's so many questions as, as we moved into this information age that the, the 20th century church was just not engaging. I felt like, I was a part of a world that was providing answers to questions that no one was asking anymore. So coming to a church that had to be completely reset was a combination
0: of things for me. Can you just Uh, stop right there and can you comment what were some of those things you were talking about and which no one was asking about?
2: Well, you know, that whole movement of... Uh, decision theology mm-hmm. that sort of pushes this idea that if we can just get people to accept Christ by praying this prayer, you know, and then, yeah, have them move into a discipleship path and memorize scripture and show up to church and that we've done it. Like, it's mm-hmm. accomplished. Uh, no one was asking about that. In fact, people were redacting that. They were saying, whoa, 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 you, you say this prayer and mm-hmm. you're in? Mm-hmm. Like, wait a minute, back up for me. And how does that relate to, like, uh, holistic look at the way the environment. Like, well, our planet be around 25 years when I'm an adult. Yeah. What about inequities? What about race? Yeah. You know, how about you know? What about even the way our our region has been built? You know, talk to me about how the church. These are the questions I was being given. How does the church explain that it never talks about race? Yeah. That it's homogenous. And then I'm facing. Remember, I was raised and went through evangelicalism during the years of church growth where you would get degrees and you could go to seminars in what's called the homogeneity principle, right? And so – and that that if you get everyone who's more like themselves, that more people will come to know Christ was the big idea, but in fact – uh, and these are the questions that were being asked, everyone's saying, well, what does that have to do with reality? What does it have to do with bringing healing to society? What does it have to do with the gaps, the education gap, the wealth gap that helps society be thriving? You know, and, and so I would say that the issue of human and social justice, you know, mm-hmm. compassion, mercy, and justice, the core things of Christ's work and particularly emphasized in the book of Luke, those were the themes and questions that were being asked 10 years ago and that the large homogenous environment was disinterested in mm. and, 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 and didn't talk about in large measure. There was a little bit, but not enough to mean anything to the real issues. And for good reason. When I actually leaned into those questions coming downtown, I recognized that I had to go through a deconstruction and reconstruction. That I personally had to go deep into waters I'd never been in before. And uh, own my own journey and own my own privilege and own my own sense of being in the world as a white, cisgender, Mm -hmm. male, Protestant, educated, you know, last name Collison, uh, 6'4", reasonably able-bodied individual. And how I related to those who've been marginalized is my archetype is like actually the oppressor. Yeah. And then when you attach that to religious institutions like Christian institutions who have either been silent or in some cases participate in the oppressions, that's a really, really difficult space to try to lead a new church and a new movement. So I had to learn. I mean, I had to learn everything um, in those opening months. And I would say my learning curve is only steepened. And I will comment, it feels like it's coming at a time, you know, it was Phyllis Tickle, who used to be a, an editor at the Century... Uh, sort of an interesting person who said that we're in this time of reformation. And I have long believed that. um, That the information age, every 500 years, you know, it was the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. We're in one of those times right now.
0: I believe it, for sure. Yeah,
2: I'm living it. And that's another thing I'll just say where now it's appropriately being asked, well, who says? Yeah, You know, that big theological world, epistemology, or the definition of truth, or the person who says that's true, that's not true, you know, the, the the genie's out of the bottle, the lid's off, you know, you don't have a small group, and I will comment of largely white straight men who've done a lot of theology and who've been making decisions are no longer, they don't have the control button anymore. Mm-hmm. Conversations take place at the speed of light or the speed of digital cross-informing. And everyone now is accountable to both reality, they're accountable to one another's ideas. It's like what Jesus said, what you whisper over here is going to actually be made known everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like we're all accountable. Mm -hmm. And so – When you add all of that together, me sort of shifting in paradigm away from a homogeneity principle, church growth model, to being an urban church that seeks to be a a faithful presence in the downtown environment. And then you've got a reformation. And then there's these really complex things like human sexuality that bust up churches and are bruising conversations in denominations. I mean, you add all that up and that's what this last 10 years have been. Um, but at the same time it's been an incredible journey of health and an incredible journey of self-discovery and I have only gratitude for what has taken place over the, over these 10 years.
0: I really appreciate that. I think having that sense of looking back and going it's really hard is um, you know from my own story coming out of, a a church culture in which I was I served for 20 years but I was one of those people 27 years ago that was like raising my hand you know in a youth group to receive Jesus through that type of altar call and it was a very defining moment and meaningful transformation in my life in every single way but I was one of those stories where someone told the story which we call preaching the gospel about the love of God and the story of Jesus, and I responded by saying, yes, please, I'm in, right? And so I spent seven years as a, you know, person who was really discovering God and taking on all these cultural church mores about what it looked like to be a disciple of Him. And and then the path I took was to go to seminary, like many other people who become pastors, and now I'm on this other side of the story, 20 years later, where I feel as if, in some way, I'm in recovery. Uh, in the Reformation, I'm trying to reform, but I'm also trying to re- recover from all of the different things that have uh, I've, that I've absorbed. So, but you're still in it. Uh, You're still, as you talked about, you're still finding a place of gratitude, even though, as you mentioned before, there's been a lot of bruising in these conversations. Um, You said the control button is shifting, although sometimes it seems like it's just like there's two different control buttons or 17 different control buttons that have been divided. and Everyone's kind of pushing, 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 pushing these these control buttons like the old Office Depot uh, commercial, you know, whatever that red button thing was. Uh, so can you talk about where you are now and the sort of the the work that you're doing? Because you're in uh, the, the denomination that I was a part of, and you're trying to bring some significant change, and it's not easy, and you're facing some consequences. Uh, can you just tell that story, Dan, of what you're going through right now?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that question and even raising uh, uh, some of those nuanced points of control. Um, you know, I... I'm I'm sort of a historically naively transparent person um, where I enter into things with a very positive outlook and hope for the hope for the best and and even when things go wrong I still tend to frame things in a positive way and
0: <laughs> I get that and that's
2: served me well yeah. <laughs> although I've had to I don't know. The older I'm getting, the more things go wrong. Uh, I think I still – the positivity serves me very well. But there has to be a really good measure of let me just be honest about this or let me talk about how I think that will go really well and I think that will go really bad. Just being really transparently honest and that's what I want to share today that – You know, I was called to be the lead pastor of First Covenant Church. This was a church that um, was very historic for 100 years, was the largest evangelical covenant church in the denomination. Uh, our congregation actually predates the denomination. It was a very large in-gathering of immigrants, Swedish mostly, but Scandinavian collectively who came here. And those who spoke Swedish would come to the Swedish tabernacle. And so thousands came to this community in the late 1800s. And that stayed pretty robust up until – You know, the 1950s is when the decline began, uh, began, and by the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was precipitous. And when I arrived, there were like three children, 50 people in average worship, and the covenant denomination was pleased to recruit me, and the church was pleased to recruit me from a large mainline evangelical church. And having these questions and the things I just spoke to uh, were very transparently, maybe naively, as a part of the opening agreements. Mm -hmm. And as we restarted the church for uh, four years, five years, maybe even a little bit part of six years, I would say that uh, across the denomination, and particularly when it came to like church revitalization, we were the we were the superstars. The community uh, sort of modeled the best ways of reinventing and becoming contextually planted. And part of why even today, I'll get to the hard hard stuff in a minute, but even today we are sustainable and a very healthy congregation uh, is because we did learn how to become a modern church. We saw our building as our building and our bodies as the church, theologically Mm -hmm. grounded that uh, the brick and mortars are yes, these spaces where sacred actions take place. But we are the sacred actions. We are the church, and and that. gone with the days of just, you know, making the church uh, building yep. uh, our identity.
0: Preach it, Dan.
2: So, I'm telling you, well, <laughs> and you we were forced into it. Like uh, we couldn't have. When I arrived, there was a half million dollar annual deficit. Um, and, and you know, enough money to get us three years down the line before lights were out. And the only way to close that was going to be sharing. You know, and so we have it rotates depending on what groups are in between six and nine nonprofits in our building. Uh, we learned about homelessness and be, began doing a shelter partnership where the county funds it, a nonprofit organization staffs it, and then we organize some of the hospitality. And then we reach out to the community. There's like 80 groups that bring in meals every night, every night of the year. We're hosting between 50 and 60 women
0: every night, it's,
2: it's every night of the year.
0: 360 That's amazing. That just it it. it gets me when I see churches and I mean the people of God using their buildings to do good in their communities. It just breaks my heart when we have these amazing buildings that are empty (laughs) five or six days a week and filled on Sundays or barely filled on Sundays. It just makes sense to repurpose these buildings to do the work of God, which is helping the poor, setting the captives free, uh, welcoming the stranger. So I love that. That's wow. That's awesome, dude. Well, and that's a
2: whole like podcast in itself. How do you, in our modern time, build meaningful partnerships where your sharing is not just about, hey, we need someone to lease this part of our building, but it's actually about ideas. Yeah. Our integrating motif developed around what was called the healing block motif. Uh, it started with the shelter, it expanded, I mean, we also had an early childhood center, uh, that was there before I came. It needed some reinvention. Uh, Serves 76 children. Um, you know, many families. Uh, there's a non-religious arts collective. Uh, We've had a resource center for the National Association of Morning Contractors for many years. Uh, We have a free legal aid clinic. We have a Nigerian church that meets here a couple times a week. We have um, our our biggest project uh, beyond the homeless shelter I talked about that breaks ground in December is a 169-unit affordable housing project. Uh, all together the housing, some new parking, new elevators, improvements to the building. It's a $41 million project that will bring tax credit, affordable housing to our block and welcome 300 new singles and families uh, onto our block and onto the parking lot that the church has had for many years. And uh, so the healing block, oh, I should say the one of the sort of connectors was the hospital across the street. It's one of the largest trauma one hospitals in the state, Hennepin Healthcare, uh, they have a billion dollar annual budget, speak like 70 languages, and they have a work group called Upstream Health Innovations that, that leases a very large space in our, on their our first floor, in fact the staff gave up that space We move to the top floor and we hoof it upstairs so they can meet there and it's 14 designers and doctors and philanthropists and community organizing people that reimagine social determinants of health. And connecting the emergency room all the way back to the community as to why do people come to the emergency room and they do systems change. And so everything from homelessness to systems change to housing to legal to arts. I mean, it's an ecosystem that brings so much joy to this block that to me is how church can now learn. We learn from these. Partners, how to live the gospel in ways that are not only real to our faith, but are real to like all people, regardless of creed, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, very Jesus centric. So, what's interesting, and this gets to the harder side of this conversation, is from the very beginning, day one, uh, as we really regrounded, replanted the community of faith, you know, those conversations about social justice, human flourishing, uh, how does your Christian faith, witness, and embodiment actually include everybody? I mean, day one, the conversation around those in the LGBTQ community was like front-facing. Minneapolis is an environment where there's very high consciousness to justice in that that conversation, but it was an immediate expectation. It was question one. It wasn't question ten. So you're a pastor at this church, your first covenant church. Well, am I welcome? Am I welcome for real? Am I included? And at the same time, that's just not a switch you can flick. You know, that's a, that's that's like a very deep and long conversation. And so I will say, and today I'm grateful to look back and say we've made it through this. But uh, we began having conversations about inclusion, and by inclusion I mean how do people. Um, Regardless of their sexual orientation, identity, uh, how do we include everyone as equals in our environment, in our church, as members and leaders and staff? Those questions began right away, and we started with just staff at first, you know, some task force work, reading books, drafting some initial statements, and ultimately there was a point about four or five years ago where the church came to a point of clarity, like, you know, and by the way, this was around the time that the laws in the state of Minnesota, and then after that nationally changed as to, you know, the right for people to marry. And, you know, even these larger conversations about employer rights and housing and medical attention related to those who are LGBTQ. And we did a ton of work in this. I mean, uh, more reading than you can possibly imagine and conversations and convenings and town halls. And, you know, the Evangelical Covenant Church is an interesting space and you know it really well. Um, but I would, and it's interesting because it's, it's this group that's been around for over 100 years that seems to be able to disagree about everything. I mean, we have these six affirmations, right, that are core to who we are and they're really great. Um, but then after that, we just kind of wrestle it out. You know, we're probably the only Protestant denomination that allows for two forms of baptism and literally two different theologies that contravene one another to exist together, almost paradoxically. Infant baptism, adult baptism. And there's some churches that refuse to baptize babies. There's some churches that emphasize baptism for babies but just don't emphasize adult baptism. But we all sort of stay together. Mm-hmm. Uh, women being pastors, that, that changed in the 70s, and it was not a comfortable or easy conversation, but by and large, the denomination has done it. I mean, there's still some churches that have written into their documents, official documents, we will not promote a woman to be a pastor of our church. Right? Is it true. is, you know.
0: Crazy town.
2: I know. Um, and then we come to the human sexuality conversation, and uh, I, this is where I just want to say, even I want to just say, I learned this phrase actually from an incredible uh, diversity, equity, inclusion consultant in town here where she said to me, Dan, I just wish I could tell everyone you never get an A in this work. This isn't about getting an A. No one uh, aces this.
0: In the work of inclusion or the in work the of work the church? Of okay. mm-hmm.
2: Well, I would argue <laughs> in life, right? <laughs> right?
0: <Yeah. laughs>
2: you're either on the path or you're fighting being yep. on the path. Yep. Or, and, and And when it came to this work you know, I, I deal with some perfectionism. That's some of my shadow side. I'm a three on the Enneagram. We could talk about that Christian litmus test of what's your trap door. Well, my trap door is I perform. My Mm -hmm. trap door is I, I love resonance and I love working hard and seeing things go really well. Uh, but I can burn myself out if there isn't purpose in it, if there isn't meaning in it, or I'm not focused as to why I'm doing something. We did everything right and things went wrong. and, Mm -hmm. and,
0: Go ahead. ahead. Say, say what, what do you mean? What did you do right, and how did it go wrong?
2: Well, you know, the covenant, as I was told by a minority of leaders and pastors that I've gotten to know over the years, should have always been able to lead in this conversation and just let people disagree. We have our positions. The stated position is, you know, celibacy and singleness, fidelity, and heterosexual marriage. And there's a whole set of documents that have been developed over the years around that. And yet there's been a lot of pastors, not a lot, but some churches who have just pushed against that and never really agreed to it, uh, wanted to see change, uh, or at minimum are like just independence, like mm-hmm. let us do good parish ministry. And so um, our, our approach at First Covenant was to be as careful as possible, um, and, and, and the challenge was we had... Uh, immediately those who came to the church, there, who, those who cared to be church, those who wanted, were largely covenant people, but they were people who were a little bit of refugees from some covenant churches. There was a gay couple who came from outstate and this was the first covenant church they could be home in. There were two young women who, you know, came out and they fell in love and They wanted to get married, and so we had a non-ordained staff member perform that wedding off-site, right? Like, we're trying to stay in the conversation with the covenant, but also be including as best we can. And some people just really got angry and upset about that, and it included some elected leaders. And as time has gone on, those elected leaders have uh, been somehow compelled either by the majority opinion, which I'm sure that's a very much a part of it, and perhaps a lot of threat to their jobs. If you don't do something to Dan Collison and First Covenant Church, we will X, we will leave, we won't give you money. I mean, this is how it goes, sadly, in a lot of institutions. So Dan, a lot of th- was
0: this in the past year? Was this over uh, the decade? When has these things been surfacing?
2: Well, intensely... Over the last year, okay, uh, but it's been a conversation of elevated significance for four years. It started with just a lot of dialogue and a lot of one-on-ones, and then leadership team with executive leaders, and um, you know, as the conversation then widened to the whole denomination, um, and you know, there were difficult things going on. There were some young churches who were church planters, who wanted to be inclusive and um, treat everyone equally, Um, they got their funding pulled. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone else had their building taken, you know, Um, and things began to be rancorous. Mm -hmm. Like this shifted out of we disagree and we don't know what we're going to do to we're going to we're not going to give you money. And if you do this, we will come at you. And, and, and that ramped up over the last year. I mean, I was given warnings by elected leaders. Um, the Board of Ordered Ministry is a group of elected people who serve the body. And typically, you know, I would say almost exclusively, it's their job to provide pastoral care to pastors who either deal with ethical issues or personal issues that need to take a step back from ministry, and uh, this is the first time me and two other pastors—so there's three of us—who went in front of the board. We were we were called in front of the board of ministry not because we took money, or we went through a divorce, or there was, or our church was angry with us, or something went wrong. Uh, this is the first time in its history where we were brought in front of the board because we disagreed with a stated position of the church. You know, and that's interesting to me because the other positions in this space, the number one is, is baptism. The other, like, affirmed, like, really affirmed position is baptism. Like, you have to baptize both, but no one's been brought in front of the board because they refused to baptize babies. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's been in front of the board just because they refused to have women in the pulpit, or they refuse to hire women in the pulpit, the other discern positions. So for me, it was confusing. Like I was willing to handle and work and wrestle with people one-on-one, and I wrote some papers. I preached some sermons. We have some classes that talk about different angles and positions. I have a four-chair model we talk about here. Stuff that allows us to live in tension, but yet sure. truly allow all the positions to be here and also truly be including... I think we as a church were really doing well, but when the larger conversation of some people left the church because they were angry about this or people went to the church 20 years ago and they were angry about it or elected people because people in other places around the country and around our state were angry about us being including, uh, they felt they had to act. And so they suspended my ministry license last summer around the annual meeting.
0: And just Uh, to be clear, so you are being let's use the word reprimanded you're being reprimanded by the removing some credentials from you that enable you to perform weddings and and things like that or to be recognized as an official minister simply because to put it i mean bluntly you want gay people to be equally treated as human beings included as a part of the church body the communal church body they could take communion they could lead a small group they could get married. That's what you're advocating for is equal treatment, equal rights, inclusion in the family of God and the gatherings of the church at First Covenant. Correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about that is the other two pastors who were suspended uh, was because they, perf- well, there were three, actually, a total sort of told four of us. One was suspended for praying at a gay wedding. Another one was suspended performing the, the wedding of his gay son third one was suspended for performing the wedding of a, of a student that, that uh, the pastor oversaw. And, and in my case, I'd done none of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had just spoken up. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and our, I also was following the voice of our covenant community that was asking for me to speak up. And I was following the voices of other covenant ordained pastors who were challenging me and asking me to speak up. And so I spoke up. And by speaking up, I mean we advocated, and I have sermonic content for how we can we can actually be a covenant community and include. And yes, and by include I mean uh, openly gay members, uh, members, members, staff, elected leaders, throughout the life of the church as equals. And and this is also I think a real pinch point: the leadership of the church made this decision last spring, this past spring in 2018. We have a two-page document on our website that says we will provide pastoral care for everyone equal. And that includes uh, funerals and weddings. And that ultimately means that the church will will not reprimand or remove a pastor if a pastor chooses to perform a gay wedding. I have not performed a gay wedding. uh, but they've sort of cleared the way that, that they would retain pastors if you did that. And what's interesting in this and what's sort of a tension is that um, in saying that we're providing an environment that they're equal, and even though I haven't performed a gay wedding, that apparently, at least to the Board of Order Ministry, crossed the lines that the current elected leaders cannot reconcile with how they want the church and the church's direction to go. And so while people disagree about gender and egalitarianism, people disagree about baptism, people disagree about different levels of Christology, people disagree about, you know, really everything you can possibly imagine, this is the one topic that the current elected leaders are forbidding pastors and churches to disagree on. And I will comment that because the church released the statement, the leadership of the church released the statement saying, We'll treat everyone equal. The church is going through a process that may lead to the church being kicked out at next summer's annual meeting. It might not, but it may. And the letters we're receiving, the rhetoric is very elevated. And, you know, my license is still suspended. And I will comment that uh, the leadership of the church was anticipating that the current covenant leaders may suspend my license. And so on the day that I was suspended, they administered to me, which is the right of every church in America and in the state of Minnesota, a local license for me to continue as a licensed pastor. Mm-hmm. That's cool. You know, I'm still advocating for my ordination to be returned to me. That's what I expect. That's what I want. That's what I feel I deserve based upon not just my opinion, But the opinion, it's a minority opinion. It's a small amount of pastors and leaders who see this differently and would like the covenant to be more uh, diverse in the way they interpret all of this. But for now, the people elected, the people in power um, are, are reaching a precipice with which they some are seeking to change the denomination. They want to now become a positional church. They want to now take a step back from the connectional, relational commitments that have been historic. The Pietist tradition, which is about experience and relationship over dogma and doctrine. Like they say we're evangelical but not exclusive. Like that language, well, I get the complexity around that. I think it needs to be seriously challenged if they're going to throw a pastor out and a church out who just see it differently Mm -hmm. and want to do faithful ministry in their context. Um, So it's a, it's a big and difficult set of issues that is going to probably come to a head in the summer of 2019.
0: Wow. Well, I know we only have some limited time, but I want to ask a couple questions. One, uh, personally, how do you navigate through this? This seems like a very heated emotional time. How do you how do you have a love for the church, a love for these leaders as you disagree and as you deal with the consequences that, that have been put upon you? And then two, I guess underneath that is obviously you have reformed and you understand in some way where they're coming from, right? There's this understanding of uh, maybe empathy you have because of how they read scripture, how they hold to doctrine and tra- to tradition, which is what, something I always appreciate when someone can look from the other side. My friend Matt Nightingale, who I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, who was a covenant worship pastor who came out and he's been on this podcast, he often turns the tables because he understands the other side because he was on that other side so much. So I think for my listeners, who want to throw in the towel and want to say, why do you even stick with the church? This is why people leave the church. This is why religion is so messed up. I feel like people like you who are pastors, you have this great love because you understand and have empathy. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about those two things to repeat. How do you emotionally uh, take care of yourself through this, which I imagine it is grueling. And number two, a little bit of the empathy of how you understand where they're coming from and how you Um, how you navigate through the fact that maybe you were there at one point and have just evolved?
2: Yeah, those are great and really important questions. Um, For me personally, uh, when the whole deep end of all of this began unfolding four or five years ago, I immediately reached out to two spiritual directors. Um, And sometimes counseling can be very helpful as well. For me, this was... The important decision to have two spiritual directors—one who's in the community, very gifted—and one who's outside of the community, very gifted—and every other month I rotate and 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 did a lot of deep inner work. Uh, personally, it was hard. You know, I uh, have always been this a you know, I would say a minus student because <laughs> I wouldn't call myself smart or brilliant. I would call myself hardworking and ethical, and I show up and I'm pleased to do it and I pursue excellence and in this environment though it felt like I checked all the boxes immediately I was considered unethical and I get it I, I actually get it you know when these things are changing at the rate of every 50 years mm-hmm. you know we're, we're less than a couple hundred years from under you know even some consciousness changing on race a hundred years or less and even more on gender, and you go to human sexuality, and it's it's the quote-unquote new conversation. You know, when you talk about institutions that that were moving over hundreds of years, I mean, the Catholic Church just admitted that they, uh, that Galileo was right. Like, over 250 years after Galileo was in prison, lost his credentials, was excommunicated, now the church whispers are right. So, hmm. but I just, I'm here to say that While I believe that I have been invited into a new space and I have found an incredible and I would say life-giving understanding of relationships and people who follow Christ and are openly gay and are faithful and exhibit the kingdom of God. And I consider them vulnerable against some of the systems and the churches. Like I'm willing to lean in that space, but I was not expecting to immediately be called unethical, Mm -hmm. to be cast out, to be, you know – uh, sort of derided as someone who was not only unfaithful, but was sort of like destructive. Right. I mean, I that stuff just really threw me. There was a lot. There was several months and years where I felt hurt, where I felt defended, where uh, I just was bleeding, so to speak, yeah. and had to go through this journey. And I'm continuing this journey of helping it to not be about me. Mm-hmm. And, and setting aside or moving through, like, white fragility, straight fragility, uh, as I consider myself in the deeper work in social justice is to be an ally to all who are marginalized, uh, that ultimately means that mutuality is freedom. And uh, so the care has been deep. I will say from spiritual directors, my wife Holly, from the community. The First Covenant community has been astonishing. And I'll also say from Covenant pastors. I have had people reach out to me with such warm and kind words that you cannot imagine. I mean, just kindness, kindness, kindness and support. Um, And that care has been really important. When it comes to the empathy, I don't know, the leadership, historian, uh sort of philosophy of religion, human consciousness, all these things that either accelerate or become blockers and retrenchments on change. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually do understand that. Right. Um, I actually, you know, when someone says, well, like I wrestled with someone who is like, why would we change the position on women? I mean, it's been this way for thousands of years, you know? Uh, and and even though I bring up what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, that the Christian faith, whether Protestant or Catholic, has always used Scripture, experience, tradition, and reason. We've always and we always point to Protestant tradition. Scripture is like prominent, right, eminent. I get that, uh, but yet experience and reason yep. are constantly bringing us to new spaces about human identity. And so I guess I actually have a lot of compassion mm-hmm. and I have a lot of patience um, for those who even want to see me gone. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's hard to show up in those spaces with some of those individuals. You know, I, I uh, the thought of going in front of 400 pastors next summer and the board of order ministry is saying we recommend that he's removed from the list of pastors and then I stand up and say I'm here to defend myself and and push against this I mean I I look forward to that about like ripping my fingernails off <laughs> you know and they if they forward know. that to the larger body of 4 or 500 maybe 600 delegates and I do it again I mean it's like in a larger assembly I mean I look, that's painful to yeah. me that would be excruciating but at the same time Part of me gets it. You know, religious systems, I don't care what one you're a part of. They all have that's why we have more than forty-four thousand Protestant denominations, Uh right? Yeah. This stuff's frail. Right. This stuff unfortunately has the same kind of life cycles as individual churches, just a little bit more large. And it's dynamic and it's evolving. And so my core ethic has to be it's always been to be kind, to be clear. To be courageous, to be present, and after that, learn to let go. Mm-hmm. That that I'm out in control of anything.
0: Yep, that's so good, Dan. I really resonate with all of that. And just as you were talking, I was thinking at the core, you know, the people who are pushing against your desire to be inclusive and to welcome the LGBTQ community at the core. This is what the only thing that can get me through, even though I. I disagree with it and get so frustrated with it, is that they believe they're doing the work of God, just like you do. Like they believe at their heart's core that they are honoring what they believe to be scripture and, and truth. Um, but as you said, what the hard part is engaging in those conversations about what we think about scripture. What does this say? Where is it written? Which is really at the core of the evangelical covenant <laughs> uh, movement is we would use those words where is it written and that's where everyone's coming to a disagreement and so that's the hard part is how do we be brothers and sisters in the family of god when we disagree about what this book says it says so many things that you said 44 something thousand different denominations have been birthed from these words on a page so you're leaning into reason you're leaning into experience and uh, i really appreciate that man i think you're paving the way and i'm grateful that Judy who's you know, who's our connection Judy Peterson was one of the four people that you mentioned earlier who also has been experiencing some consequences for trying to be inclusive and welcoming people i think i'm leaning into your stories i'm curious i hope other people will as well and that we'll find some encouragement in standing on this side of history just like galileo <laughs> that we might not see We might not see the end of the story, but we're helping to move the story forward. And I really think that you truly are. So thank you so much, man, for your time. I know you got to go. But is there any other final things you want to say where people can find you? Any other things you want to promote before we end the the podcast?
2: Yeah, I mean, I really love this community. You know, First Covenant Minneapolis, our website is, you know, www.thenumberone, STCOV.org. Um, is uh, a great place if if you're curious um, we do stream sermons um, we do have a Facebook page as well that does Facebook live if you want to tune in on Sundays we have 930 services and we only stream typically the sermon around 10 o'clock or so but then it stays on the page so people can stream it after You know, it's a Facebook live we may get a podcast going to have the teachings you know and uh I think there's some really amazing and life-giving things going on in the community. Um, I feel like our community is 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 you know, way, I, it transcends me by like a million miles. I feel like I'm just air traffic control mm-hmm. and and love the fact that at some point in the future I won't be the lead pastor and this community will continue to bring voice and shape to what it means to be a modern church grounded in Protestant tradition and uh, so as you have time and interest, check in on First Covenant and pray for us Uh, I would say pray if you are given to prayer, you know, pray for the Covenant Church Um, you know, in this moment I I, I don't think this is going to linger forever and particularly as we come into this next year, uh, that we can find a way to ideally be connected even through our disagreements
0: really, thank you. you Yeah, thank you Appreciate so much, your man. Podcast. You too, dude. Yeah, thanks for your work. Right, Take All care. Right, bye. Thanks for listening to Holy Cannoli. If you liked my dad's podcast, please subscribe, give it a review, and share it with someone you think would be encouraged by it. Holy Cannoli Podcast is a proud production of Brave Maker Media. For more information or to donate, go to bravemaker.com to make your tax deductible donation today.